Welcome back to the Healthcare Insight Podcast. I'm Eric Silberman. And I'm Jane Crosby. Thanks for coming back. We're really excited to have Scott Becker on the podcast this week. Yeah, Scott Becker joined us. Tons of really great industry perspective. I mean, come on, every one of us, I'm sure, reads the CFO report, reads the IT report, reads the the Becker's hospital review. So we hear from Scott all the time and and his team in, in one way or another. But it was great to be able to connect with him firsthand and get some of his thoughts around the industry, but also around content. Yeah, I agree. You know, he talked a lot about trying to be everything to everyone. And I think that's something we talk to our hospital clients a lot about, Eric, in that you can't necessarily get a mile wide and an inch deep right away if you're just implementing a content marketing program. Really honing in on who are you trying to reach and what do they care about is pretty critical to getting some quick wins, I think, out of the gate as your organization just starts to invest in content marketing. Well, it's not just content marketing. It's the business of health it's healthcare recruiting, it's staffing levels, it's how to operate at the top of your license. It's all kinds of great perspective. Don't take our word for it. Let's hear directly from Scott Becker. Eric Jane, thank you folks very much. A pleasure to visit with you. Thank well, you. We're, we're really happy you're here. I'd love to hear just a little bit about you, about your work for our listeners. I'm sure most of our listeners have some familiarity with, with what you've got going on, but but talk to us a little bit about, uh, about you and, and what you're working on. Sure. Thank you. So I work on a few different things. I mean, the core of uh, I've straddled two businesses forever for a very long time. I, I started a company called Becker's Healthcare literally 30 years ago now, around 30 years ago. And it's 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 grown greatly with a great, great team of people and a great audience where we sort of cover the landscape of healthcare. And that's sort of hospitals and health systems, surgery centers, orthopedic and spine. And then a big, big part of the business today is health IT and revenue cycle, four main sort of verticals within healthcare. And we cover them both digitally, um, lots of electronic newsletters, websites, white papers, webinars, podcasts, and then also live events. Of course, it's been a, a, a quite 18 months for live events, but, but thank goodness we have a large editorial team and a large digital presence. Uh, that was more than 50, 60% of the business prior to the pandemic. So, so we've, we've done fine through the pandemic. And it's just been a great pleasure to cover healthcare and leadership and healthcare and leadership throughout healthcare during the pandemic. It's been a magnificent effort by the healthcare communities. It's been just, you know, magnificently fascinating to watch everything with the business of healthcare, COVID, the pandemic, everything. Just a fascinating period of time to be in the healthcare of uh, observer journalist world. Fascinating. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the kind of business of healthcare and, and how that's changing. Most of our audience is, is in the healthcare marketing space in, in one way or another. Maybe talk to us about just kind of a macro level view of what you see happening in the landscape from a business of healthcare, from a consumption of healthcare standpoint that, that we do well to pay close attention to as marketers. The, the world obviously has moved from a from a, a healthcare system perspective, to still you know, let's start with healthcare systems, still huge bricks and mortar, still huge, huge labor. Uh, but then, you know, this this very, very strong effort over the last 18 months, and going back five years, but really accelerated over the last 18 months, to get much more digitally in front of and a, a much greater digital and consumer experience. And so you've had this whole transition of healthcare. From the big health system perspective to, to having to be great at delivering care, the massive amount of care that health systems deliver, plus the getting much closer on consumer experience and how they work with their patients and constituents, because the patients and constituents expect an easier and easier and, and more and more 
frictionless experience, a more digital experience. And that's been an evolution for health systems. I mean, multiple other trends, more and more companies that are growing up side by side with the health systems to try and deliver that experience, that healthcare experience. And, and health systems are trying to figure out how they sort of work through continuing to be the most relevant part of the healthcare landscape. Well, side by side with them, there's this evolution of all these digital health companies, telehealth companies, and so forth that want to be the front door for patients when health systems and doctor's offices still want to be the front door themselves. So you've got this this big bifurcation of the entire healthcare market. Then you've got this issue that nobody, you can't get through a conversation today in healthcare or almost any other area without talking about workforce shortages and, and workplace shortages. And if you talk to one magnificent health system executive this morning and the core concept is when you talk about top priorities for the end of the year, the top priorities are no new ideas. It's basically taking care of their staff, taking care of their patients, and trying to keep them from trying to, you know, X new initiatives right now just because it's not enough bandwidth. It's trying to make sure they're taking care of patients through another COVID surge and take care of things. So think about so this digital consumer experience, the growth of all kinds of new kinds of competitors, both digital and private equity funded in all kinds of different ways. And then this this big overlay to everything right now is is great challenges on the workforce side in every business, but particularly in healthcare, of course. From a marketing perspective, you know, I started a digital healthcare uh, media company 30 years ago, and we started the digital healthcare media company for a completely different reason. Uh, and there are a couple of different observations around it. You know, I wasn't very smart. I was trying to build a legal practice in the healthcare area, and 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 I sort of built this media company at first, sort of an extension of branding and marketing. It wasn't to be a, a media business. At some point, we turned the corner. We, we crossed the chasm and became a serious media business and had nothing to do with my legal practice, but a media practice, a media business. But but there's multiple different lessons there. When we got started in this 30 years ago, we ended up heavily on digital and conferences, in part, not because we were brilliant. We were not. We were, we were, we were brilliant enough to know that if we went to the print audience, we would get slaughtered because the people that own the print audience were just far more established, and I had self-funded everything, and we just couldn't afford it. You know, the, the, the great competitor in print was Modern Healthcare, a magnificent, you know, publication, set of publications of the Cranes brand, and we couldn't afford to fight with them on the print side. We just couldn't afford it. It wasn't brilliant to design. It was like, we can't win there, so we decided to win in the digital side or try and win in the digital side. And over time, we were able to establish that leadership on the digital side. But it's, it's a fascinating business lesson for today as well. You look at today's world as a marketer, as a brander, you know, and, and you know, there's this old, there's, there's two or three different thoughts that go into this. And Eric and Jane, this is your business every day, so you know this. The world from a digital perspective is so much more crowded. So if you're trying to stand out today, there's a lot more grit that it takes, a lot more stick to a lot more sort of branding well, a lot more great messaging to make a difference and impact in what is what is literally an ocean of information. So starting this today, thank goodness I started 30 years ago and started as a thumbnail of what it is today, but thank goodness, because starting it today takes so much resources, such a way of going about it. The, the, the second thing I find um, fascinating about, you know, it, about today's digital landscape, there's this old concept, and you're in the branding marketing world, it's an old Ogilvy and advertising concept, but it rings true in so many worlds. You know, when I first started a digital media company, I would send my first couple things out and people would scoff at it and laugh at it. You know, and it would, it would took a while to have a thick skin to get through that. 
then there's an old Ogilvy concept that somebody's got to see you 15 times, you know, for it to start resonating, for it to start registering. And, and, and that number can change, you know, 15, whatever that number is. It takes a while for people to start looking at a brand. It's why the one-time Super Bowl ads are such a huge waste of money because seeing it once is useless. Seeing a hospital brand 20, 30 times, seeing a practice brand a lot starts to have an impact in the consumer's mind. And so one of the things that's happened in this information overload world is, you know, somebody said to me a week ago or so, you know, somebody's got to see us seven times to start remembering it. And the reality in today's world, it's probably twice, three, four times that. Till and there's a reason why the email marketing services called constant contact. You have to be in front of somebody enough, so they either and they, they either have to like you or feel like they're being spammed. So it's got to be good. It's got to be great content, great branding, which is what you guys are experts in. But it's got to be so much in front of people till they start to move from scoffing to, oh, that's a serious professional building something serious. You know, and it's a fascinating evolution in, in healthcare branding, healthcare marketing. You know, and then you have to figure out, you know, I mean, let me let me step back to you, Eric, so I don't just talk. I'll shut up for a second. Let me ask, let you ask questions. Sorry about that. No, it's great. Well, and so so I've got a, I've got a follow on. We'll, we'll see. You can tell me if it if it follows the thread that you're on. But by all means, you can you can keep riffing on the on the line that you were you were headed on there. What I'm interested in is you you have this credibility in the in the market. Obviously, you you've built this brand. You've got a respected brand in the content space, and yet it is so crowded that it's you've got to really stay on your A game in order to keep consumers' attention. So, you produce a ton of great content. What are some of the pro tips that you'd give to some of our healthcare marketers on how to make sure that those 15, 30, 45 impressions that they're getting are the ones that that really connect, especially, you know, you you connect with a very high end professional audience on the regular and you've got everybody's attention. What's the secret? Yeah. So it's it's um. This the, the secret is not a secret, and and you know this. If you're doing great branding for a horrible client, it doesn't get any place. It doesn't it doesn't matter. You can do the best branding in the world for a horrible client, and it's not going any place in the long run. You know, it's like there was a hospital I stepped into 10, 12 years ago, and it was a small, small rural hospital. And so many of our rural hospitals are magnificent. This was not one of them. This was a rural hospital where no one would take their own family members to that hospital. And they were trying to figure out what to do about the hospital, whether they merge it with a bigger institution, whether they improve it, whatever they're going to do. And it, it, and it all comes back. You could do as much branding as you wanted for that small hospital. It wouldn't have mattered because that hospital couldn't deliver what it was delivering. So it, it, in the same thing here, there is so much noise. We have to, we've got a magnificent editorial team. 20 plus full-time writers that's all they do is write and cover the landscape and they have to cover it in the way that our consumers want to read it and that's changing and evolving always of course but years ago we moved very much towards short concise you know short form journalism which is what our you know i used to write think i was very bright write these long things nobody would read them so we moved towards short and concise over a long period of time very disciplined short and concise method of writing and then it's got to be great content and that's really depends on you can't manage that hard enough you can't manage it that well you need to have great people so we, we try and hire a magnificent editorial team we try and fit them into this is how we sort of approach our audience 
but it's it, it really depends on the quality of those people we hire so much because there's only so much you could coach anybody. I mean, you have to have great people, then they do a great job. And much other great people let them work. Then have to mic you just you can't there's not enough time today, there's not enough patience today. So so you have to have great content. It's not it's not a, like like we we goofed around with some of the SEO strategies and those kinds of things. We never found it to be all that helpful, quite frankly. We found much more important was building lists over time, building context over time, building community over time, and having great content. So it goes back to this old adage, it's so cliche that content is king, but or queen, whatever you want to call it. But it's very, very important. They have to have context. You could you could send out to a million people, but if nine hundred eighty thousand immediately unsubscribe, you know you 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 won nothing. You know, and it, and it's uh so it's it's a game of constantly having very disciplined writers covering the areas they have to cover. We made lots of choices about what we do and don't do. Like we don't try and be the best source of clinical information. Like we're not telling a surgeon how to do surgery. We can't do it. We've got extremely bright writers. They're not medical school graduates. We can't do it. I can't do it. They can't do it. You know, years ago, we used to run list on 100 great orthopedic surgeons, you know, and, and we found was we really couldn't do that. We, we couldn't do it in a real way because there wasn't good data out there to do it. You know, we could do it on great hospitals. So there's enough data out there in hospital systems to do that. We couldn't do it on doctors. We used to do it on doctors, and we'd find every once in a while somebody would send me an email, you know, that doctor's been sued 23 times. I'm like, ah, that's embarrassing. You know, it was just we just couldn't do it. So we, so there's a lot of things that would do great for clicks and do great for people reading, but we just couldn't do right. And so we try and maintain that discipline of doing what we can well and, and sticking to concise and making sure we hire great people and great writers, Molly Gamble, Laura Durda, Ayla Allison, three of our writers that sort of head up the editorial team, Mackenzie Bean, they're just very, very important. And then, then a whole host of writers that work with them. So it goes back to content is king. And I'm, and my, and I'm not, uh, or queen, whatever you want to call it, but I'm also like, you know, this, this social media effort is a whole new evolving effort, and you're probably more experienced than we are, but it's a fascinating effort of where does your audience reach you? How do they find you? Yeah, I agree. Content is king. And you guys have done a great job. I noticed that one of the new podcasts you launched, Scott, was the private equity podcast recently. And one of the things that Eric and I really wanted to ask you about was the M&A activity that's happening in healthcare, because we're seeing it a ton with our larger clients, especially. And it creates a lot of challenges in integrating tech stacks, brand strategies, culture, etc. What are you seeing some of the best organization, best marketers and best strategists doing to make those acquisitions successful? Sure, sure. So that's a great, great question. So there's something like this year through August, there was something like $3.8 trillion worth of M&A transactions throughout the world, $1.8 trillion throughout the United States. And that's not in healthcare, that's in total. But but those are record numbers with still three to four months left in the year with an expectation that the rest of the year is going to be crazily busy from a mergers and acquisitions perspective. And there's so many things driving that, including money is very inexpensive for borrowers, for buyers, for others, so they can buy with, at, at, at really high multiples at, you know, at, with money readily available to do all that. So it's just a crazy amount of driving forces for it. There'll be more things driving it as well. There's also extremely low treasury yields, which means there's no other place to put money. So people are putting it all into equities, whether in the private equity world, the public equity world, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, of integration, you know, I, I, you know I, what I'll tell you is the people that I've talked to about integration, you know, it's like if you're working with a, with a system that's integrating others, 
you are far better off, all things being equal, with a system that does this regularly. So it's almost that has developed a science and a team for here's how they do integrations. So, for example, we worked with a health system that had done at one point 70 or 80 acquisition transactions over the course of five to seven years. And, and what happens, like anything, as long as they're paying attention, they got better and better at it. You follow me? I mean, there's things they know. This is how we kind of do it, regardless of how the other side feels. And they have to do it in sync with the other side. But there are certain things. This is kind of how we do it. And then they got better and better and more efficient at it. Like Atrium Health, magnificent health system uh, we've not worked with, I've not worked with on their acquisitions, has done just a tremendous job of putting people that are very smart, very much in charge of acquisitions, of integration, not the acquisition part, the integration part, to make sure they're really doing it in a thoughtful way. And, and it's just great, you know, it's just great concept. It's, you, you know, when you bring in a new senior vice president to your company or, or, you know, when somebody says a new CEO is coming to take a job, there's all these books on the first 90 to first 100 days, first year uh, along the lines of before you start making all kinds of actions and, and changing everything, it's trying to understand what that other organization is doing, mm-hmm. you know, really trying to understand it. And I think that so much of integration is that, is really trying to figure out what we're doing. All systems that are integrating, if you're integrating two health systems, they sooner or rather don't want to be an Epic and Cerner. They don't want to be on multiple different, you know, more enterprise systems than they have to be on. But at the same time, they all know they've got to give it time to make those integrations. You know, you can't do it overnight. It almost goes back to the concept of we've got our priorities. You have to sort of set your priorities. You've got to do them in sync with the other side. you got to know how you do acquisitions. I mean, some of the kinds of things that go with it. From a marketing and branding standpoint, you see a ton of the following. And I'll make two or three comments, Jane, and then feel free to shut me up, of course. But you see two or three different things. Many systems start with sort of a combination of brands. You know, So Advocate Aurora would be a perfect example. Advocate Health System, Aurora Health System, Baylor, Scott & White. That's the Baylor Health System and the Scott & White Health System has, has kept those as combined names. Other ones over time move away from that original name or combining those two names to move to one name. And so it's always fascinating to see at what point people make that decision on branding and how they're going to look at branding the new system. The, the, the next thing you look at is from a marketing or branding firm, the mergers and acquisitions. I think for so many marketing and branding firms, it's been a crazy busy year. So business environment's been crazy. So everybody's been crazily busy at some point. If you're a firm that built yourself around community hospitals, mid-sized hospitals, smaller businesses, mid-sized businesses, the M&A craze can be scary because all of a sudden you move to a spot where there's less target clients and customers because the clients and customers merge into bigger customers and clients, and the bigger customers and clients typically aren't going to keep three different branding firms. They're, they're going to ultimately keep get closer and closer with one. Maybe another one gets a little bit of work on special projects, and the third one's out. You know, so so from a you know the the, the merger and consolidations. Goodness, the the growth of the Amazons and the WalMarts. WalMart's got a million six employees now. Amazon's got nine hundred to a million employees. You know, it it changes the ecosystem of business in our country because it does leave less opportunities for the small, small and mid sized firms because things get aggregated together more and more. I, I guess it's not necessarily 
less opportunities, different opportunities. You know, Scott, in, in some of your introductory comments, you talked about the, um, the trend towards, uh, digital consumption. Um, you talked about the, the, the staffing challenges, you know, just reflecting on our own business and, and businesses outside of the hospital space, that staffing challenges is, is inc- incredibly, um, persistent. You know, you can, work in California as easily as you can in Wisconsin or Tennessee now because you can sit on your couch or sit in their our office and, and have conversations like these. When when you project that onto the business landscape for healthcare, um, you know, I think about consumer loyalty being lower than it has ever been on the heels of COVID. I think about the kind of forced change for how we're consuming care from a regulatory and business environment. As you look ahead, do you see this opportunity for hospitals to think well beyond their kind of historic geographies, a primary and secondary service area? Or, or do you think you think that that will be a lagging trend compared to what's happening in the consumer sphere overall? It's a fascinating question. I mean, certainly the Mayo Clinics, the Cleveland Clinics are using their great base of, of enormous strength and research and academics to then do telehealth and partnerships with other health systems throughout the country, smaller partnerships so that if you could be a smaller hospital and still get Mayo Clinic oncology help, you know, there is those kinds of things. In general, I think it's very difficult for hospitals and health systems because, you know, I talked yesterday to hospital system, largest hospital system in their state, and they're trying to sort of essentially really have a hub and spoke model, but they're trying to be out in every rural community but at the same time, they don't want to lose the great strength they have of having amassed a great workforce, a great team, great strengths in what they do. You know, because it's 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 a differentiator between some of these telehealth services. One of the differentiators the health system has is they have the depth behind the phone. If if it's done right, mm-hmm. and so many of the telehealth systems don't. So I think it's it's a real challenge. I mean, if you look at like for example, we had recently on. The Providence Health Systems CEO of Digital Health, you know, the CEO of Digital Health or Telehealth, and this is a gentleman, brilliant doctor. If you would have told him twenty years ago, his job was going to be CEO of Telehealth. Twenty years ago, he, said, he would have said you're insane. He said that makes crazy, and he, and brilliant practicing physician. But there's, there's, you know, it's a different skill set too. You know, it's like it's not that being a doctor is being a doctor. But there, it's like everything, and we'll talk about it in the workforce context in a second. There is there is a difference to doing telehealth all the time versus patient business in person all the time. There's just slightly different skill sets and how you do those things, and you've got to make the effort to get great at them. Workforce challenges, retention challenges, culture challenges. I mean, this is a huge looming issue for companies of every single size. You know, when everybody came to the same office. We had a lot of um, natural institutional learning and teaching and culture and development. People built their best friends at work and so forth. You talk about consumers being more mercenary. We, we run the risk of being a nation of 300 million independent contractors. And then, and then you see this in the last year, huge amount of changes. If you're not stuck going to an office and you don't have the – you don't have it's not, like, not just going to the office. You don't have the close community you had. You know, some of my colleagues, their best friends came from work. You know, and that that generation, that they'll see how that evolves. You know, that, we'll see how that evolves because if you don't, if you're not going to the office, much harder to develop those close close relationships and that culture and so forth. And companies that excel at trying to figure out how we're going to have virtual workplaces, hybrid workplaces, but build a great company culture. 
you know, that's a fascinating question. People will get better at it. We'll get good at it. You know, you see JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, brilliant CEO, has said, I want to be back at the office as soon as possible because I don't know how to deal with this other thing. And, and he, he's not wrong, but the reality of the world is you're going to lose so many employees if you force them all back. And you've got to figure out how are you going to get better with glue and culture and connectivity with, with people not, you know, in person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I love to do my podcast by audio because it's so easy. I just get on the phone and talk. You know, you guys do it by in by in person, but there's obviously a much greater connectivity because I can see your faces, I can talk to you. I mean, you lose something when you just do audio. You know, but it's trying to figure out how you hit these right balances and what people want, which is total freedom to do whatever they want, versus connectivity and and having a job. Yeah, one hundred percent, and all all exacerbated by the industry that is so central to the laying on of hands, right? I mean, you know, nobody needs me in the same room with them to uh, benefit from our working relationship, but that's certainly not the case for healthcare. No, it's exactly right. It's a fascinating, fascinating situation. Scott, one thing I thought I'd ask you about is the future of of rural health. So, you know, I grew up in a community where the closest OB provider was two hours away. And I think it's pre-pandemic, there were a lot of challenges facing rural health systems with staffing, recruitment, quality of care. But you mentioned the hub and spoke model that some big systems are moving towards. I also feel like there's a lot of families who are willing to move back to rural communities now that we're in the space of remote work, people are burnt out on city life. Where do you think the rural health environment is headed over the next five years, given all the changes of the last 18 months? Yeah, no, it's a magnificent, magnificent question. And there's not easy answers to it. You're going to see more and more of it done through telehealth, through broadband, through those kinds of things. But to do that, you actually need to have broadband and the internet in the right level, the right Wi-Fi in the right level in some of these rural communities. We talk constantly to rural health systems where, you know, in the city, you know, you say transportation is a problem and somebody puts Uber on their app. You know, and if you're in a rural community, somebody tells you, there's no Uber here. And we don't have Uber. We don't have Lyft. There's not, there's not, those aren't options. And so it's really challenging. I mean, one of the strengths of, um, you know, the, the, you know, there's somebody who said years and years ago, if you we went to Europe, Every town had its own church, and that was the nexus of that town. And, and they said the same concept in the United States. Every town had its own hospital, and that was the nexus of that community. And, and there's still 5,000-plus hospitals in the country, but it's harder and harder. It, it, you know, a generation after the, the GI Bill, where people went to medical school under GI and went back to any community they go to, people immigrated to whatever community they can go to. You now have a different level of – different level, not different level, but people coming out of med school – that very much want to be in the big cities. You know, it's, it's if, even if they don't want to, their husband or wife wants them to be. So they're sort of like, they're, they're, it, it all drives people towards more and more population being the bigger cities, the bigger communities. Rural health is going to be this great mix of sort of, um, you know, telehealth. It, it's going to be a mix of, it's still going to be to get a serious, a significant operation. There's certain things you need to have locally. More and more you hear. You need, you need to have stroke care of some sort locally. Because the results are so different if somebody's treated quickly versus longer term, but it's going to be challenging. Just and and for rural communities and rural health systems, it really is knowing what they can be good at versus trying to do everything. And and, and I, I don't know. And, and we've got to make it. The country's made it. We 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 bring in I think twenty thousand new doctors start medical school a year in an aging country of three hundred thirty million. We need forty or fifty thousand. 
You know, we, we need just a lot more doctors, a lot more nurses. There's just there's just no way around it. And it's and right now you've got, you know, if you're a specialist, you don't start practicing until you're 30, 31. You know, I mean, the numbers are insane. And so it, it doesn't bode well as well as I'd like it to for rural health care. I don't think there's good I don't think there's easy answers unless you greatly increase the number of doctors and nurses. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. I wonder if medical school will ever end up like law school where we let everybody in if they want a law degree. Hey, hey, hey. The, <laughs> the, no, I, I think that's true. It's uh, law school. There's so many lawyers. And the problem with law school is you've got the opposite problem. You've got people spending two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars for tuition that have no jobs. You know, they're, they're, they're being baited into going to law school. Or you're going to be a lawyer like, like a generation ago was, and there's no jobs for those people. Or there's jobs at, at, at really low salaries unless you, you know, unless, unless you went to, did great at whatever law school you went to and went to a big firm. The money just is very different, and so it's the people have crazy amounts of debt compared to their incomes. In medical school, you could have the same thing, but we clearly need like you've got you've got too much control over this by either the medical associates, the medical guilds, whatever it is. I mean, it, you know, law school could be everything you learn as a lawyer. Whatever you learn in law school, you can learn in one to two years versus three years, and it wouldn't make a difference. Everything you learn as a lawyer, you learn in practice. In in, in medical yeah. school, it's somewhat different. But you certainly don't really need to go to school for 12 years to become a great doctor because you're going to learn so much what you actually do and practice anyways is my impression. So it, it's really an insane system and it's insanely hard to get into. There's not enough medical school spots. Even when those improve, there's not enough residency spots. You need more nurses too. Yeah, absolutely. One last question for me, and then Eric, I'll let you jump back in. Um, when we think about tech and innovation, one of the things that we see even on the marketing side is there's so many bright, shiny objects to invest in, but not a lot of ways to make them effective for the people using them or the the patient and consumer on the other side of it. What are some of, in your view, Scott, the kind of baseline investments that healthcare systems should be making right now to make patient lives easier and employee lives easier? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We have a, a we have one set of thoughts on investing in any kind of technology is we won't invest in it. And they talk from the perspective of the companies that I'm involved in until we could talk to other systems or people or companies that are using it and really understand whether they use it well, do they like it well, is it going well? Like in anything that we buy on the technology side, I won't touch it. You know, everybody always says to you, well, just try it as a pilot, try it as a beta, try it as whatever it is. But we all know that when you try something as a pilot, it does take up a lot of your people's times. It, it, it means your CIO and his team or her team have to spend a lot of time with it. it you know, there's no such thing as an easy pilot or beta. People get sold, you, the technology companies sell to you hard, just try it. And just try it. And we have a hardcore rule on the other side of that is no, no, we won't. We, the only thing we want to hear first before we even see their demonstration, see anything, is can I talk to some of your clients that use it and what they say? That's where I start in everything. And there's other people that are more – that are very innovative and have the staffs to do it that take a different approach. They're going to do early stages of some technologies, try and be in front of them you know, and, and try and um, – you know, but they have the team to study those technologies and so forth. We've taken a different position, and, and 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 the advice I give to most people is, you know, you know, it's like the same thing with buying whatever kind of phone, whatever kind of anything you use. Like, I'm not using the sixth internet system in the market. I'm using the first or second because I want to make sure it works. You know, and so with technology, there are so many new apps, so many new technologies, there's so many great ones, but you can get totally overwhelmed as a system and testing them all out. 
So we sort of start with vetting them by who else is using it and can we talk to them? Scott, it's been great, great perspective from you. What have we not talked about that you want to share with with our listeners? Well, Eric, as my uh, family will tell you, if you get me started, I'll talk for hours. So I won't do that to you. <laughs> the, um, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we, we talked to you. We, I mean, we love talking about what's going on in the health system world. We, we, we think this question of shortages, you know, what happens is, is in D.C., it's so popular to talk about free market versus Medicare for all, these very polar opposite types of things. We think one of the core, core problems, technology solves some of it, certainly, but not all of it, is these shortages and these supply issues in a, in a nation of 330 million people in an aging population. I think Jane hit it right on, you know, somewhat jokingly, but with a lot of truth to it. We just need more doctors and nurses. I mean, you could, you could, you could sort of like try this however you want to, and there are solutions that make it easier, but we have so many shortages in so many areas. You mentioned ob horrible shortages in ob and that's not changing quickly. I mean, it's fine in the big cities where there's enough patients for the amount of ob In the small communities, there's just not enough ob enough patients, you know, for people to build practices in those areas and so forth. But you just need, with, with our aging and growing population, more doctors and nurses and making it, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, a lot greater effort to support the development of the healthcare workforce. When I think about what I see from from some of our clients, I mean, you, you've hit on two two of three that are top of mind for me. You know, one is one is about expanding the kind of top end of the license, more more doctors and nurses in the in the field. The second is about kind of tech enablement and making sure that we're creating some efficiencies today where there's limitations on that front. And then I, I heard an example this week where we see um, clients that are bringing in. Um, the lower level licensure into the practice environment so that an EMT is operating at the very top of their license, which enables a nurse to operate at the very top of her license, which enables a doctor to operate at the very top of her license in that way that that provides this extension at the the other end. I imagine it's an amalgam of those kind of three legs of the stool, but I'm curious, is there is there, are the things that we're not thinking about that we should be from a business perspective? I, I, I think what happens is from a um from a business perspective, the, the concept of people practicing at the top of their license. There are a lot of things, you know, you know, and this is um, a great nurse. It can do, pick a number, and it, 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 93% of what a primary care physician can do. You know, and that number could be all over the place. But there are a lot of things a physician assistant and the nurse can do that a primary care physician can do. And then some maybe the primary care physician has had so much experience, he or she's had so much experience, so much sense of looking at things that they could see things that the nurse or the PA won't see. But there's a lot of that. There are there are you go to a different spot and and one of the real challenges you have, and all of us know this whenever you've had to see a specialist, there's all this talk about how we need so many more primary care physicians, and we do. But to your point on top of license. That is, in a lot of ways, a lot easier issue to solve than the more specialist issue. Like when you need to find a specialist, an ob you could supplement ob with midwives and all kinds of things. Absolutely. And one of my uh, sister-in-laws is, is, an, is a midwife and magnificent, and it's a way of supplementing top voices. But you still need doctors for more critical issues, more challenging issues. The specialty area is where we've got a huge problem is you most of you know if you have to find a specialist, it's almost impossible to find a specialist without knowing somebody or connecting through somebody. You follow me? If you want to find a specialist at 
doesn't think for oncology, doesn't think for brain cancer, doesn't think for almost any orthopedics. You have to find a friend. You got to get in touch with that person. You got to find how are you going to get through to that ENT when you want to that whatever it is, whatever that is. Those are much bigger gaps. They're not popular gaps to talk about because they're not as popular in Washington because they're high-earning specialists. I mean, it's, it's an unpopular area to talk about. But this need for more specialists is draconian, and the need for more primary care is very important too, but there are a lot more ways to solve primary care than there are to solve specialty shortages. And, and it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating discussion. So we agree with you on practicing the top of license. I mean, CRNAs can do 98% of what an anesthesiologist does or 93%. Whatever the number is, a lot of it, a lot of it. And that's become critically. Anesthesiologists that wouldn't hear of CRNAs now embrace them because they need them to, to keep things moving. And hospitals are the same thing. The bigger challenge is high-end specialists are just, just in shorter and shorter supply. And, you know, everybody can scoff at that neurosurgeon or that person who makes 800000 or a million a year until you need one. Then we're like, oh, my God, we need more. It's, uh, it's it's no good. So it's it's a fascinating thing. There's just there's real looming shortages of specialties in primary care, but I think some of them are easier to solve than others. Scott Becker, wonderful, wonderful perspective today. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank for all that you shared. Eric and Jane, thank you so much, and thank you to your magnificent producer for making this happen. Thank you, folks, very much for letting me join you today. <laughs>